Okay, can you give us a mic test? The burro is an important animal. Well, it's the only sentence in Spanish that I know. De burro es un animal importante. Well, there you have it, everybody. Peter Craved, speaking in a tongue. All right, let's start with a prayer. Lord God, we invite you into this hour. Amen. Okay, welcome everybody. We're here with the gifted Dr. Peter Kraft, who has forgotten more things than I'll ever know. Is that a compliment or an insult? My name is Dave Nevins. I'm the webmaster for PeterKraft.com, and one of the perks I get is to occasionally hold informal dialogues with the master philosopher. There's a master philosopher here, too? And today we're here to talk about one of the most important and exciting topics in life, the love of God as manifested through regular, ongoing, repeatable experiences in the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. Thank you very much for doing this conversational banter, Dr. Craig. You're very welcome, but let me be uh, uh, rather impolite and correct you right away. Charisms are not experiences, they're gifts. You have them whether or not you experience them. Well, that's why we're here, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Yeah, no, charisms aren't experiences, but they manifest as experiences. That's evidence you know you have them. Well, why don't we just start with that? What are charisms? Charisms are divine gifts, supernatural gifts. St. Paul lists the gifts of the Spirit. He also lists the fruit of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are certainly not always experienced. For instance, one of them is joy. We have joy at every moment if we have Jesus, but we don't feel it at every moment. I think the same is true of the gifts. For instance, if you have the gift of tongues, that doesn't mean that you're aware of it at every moment or experiencing or certainly exercising it at every moment. It's a, a potentiality that can be brought into actuality. Okay, very good. Here's an outline for the remainder of this audio. We'll start with more general topics. You could call it the philosophy of the supernatural. Then talk about where we see most of this happening, something called the charismatic renewal, in which many experience common charisms. Things like receiving visions when you pray, using the gift of tongues, whatever that means. We'll talk about that. And then receiving healings and word-for-word -word messages called prophecy. And then last, we'll discuss practical, specific ways to unwrap some of these presents. And I'll just blather on and on, comment as you want. So, first off, why do you think there's such a hesitancy or shyness on the topic of miracles? That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because most people are open-minded enough to admit that there might be miracles, but our culture doesn't publicly like them, and therefore people don't want to embarrass other people, so they don't talk about miracles. But often when two or three people are in a room and the topic somehow comes up and everyone's embarrassed to talk about it, the first one talks about it and says, well, I think I experienced a miracle once, and the second says, you too, I thought I was the only one, and it turns out that everybody in the community believes in miracles. Let's cut to a one-minute excerpt from one of your talks on this to set the stage. The master heresy of our civilization, our culture, our times, is not terribly new. It's been around for well over a century or two. One of the popes called it modernism, and it's basically the loss of the supernatural, which means either loss of belief in the supernatural to the loss of the sense of the supernatural. God always raises up new answers in the church to new problems in the world. Things like the charismatic movement. Christianity isn't static, it's a living thing. 
It's the body of Christ. It's growing where it's persecuted. It's growing in China. It's growing in, of all places, Islamic countries. Always the hardest to evangelize. But for the first time in a thousand years, there are significant Muslim conversions, almost all of them due to miracles and visions. What is God doing? It's a surprise. God always surprises you. If there's one feature of all of God's actions and all God's appearances throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, it's that he never fits into people's little boxes. And isn't this especially true for Christianity, which is based on miracles? Creation, the law, the prophets, the birth of Christ, the identity of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the resurrection, Pentecost, the second coming, and ongoing, increasing modern, miraculous, charismatic testimonies. Yeah, without miracles there's no Christianity. Yeah, and clearly this is a central theme in the Bible. For example, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about how the kingdom of God is not a matter of talking, but of power. Dunamis. More like energy. Power is a little too political-sounding a word to translate dunamis. Dynamite. Right. So... What do you think is the hardest part about all this for the culture or even the church? I think there's two things here. First, uh, we're very good at science and technology. This is what distinguishes our culture, the one thing we're rightfully proud of. And science doesn't deal with miracles because science deals only with nature. And miracles can't come from nature, but only from supernature. So science has to be agnostic or should be agnostic about miracles. Uh, People take science as a paradigm for all rational public knowledge, so they don't tend to discuss in public things that can't be dealt with scientifically. And then the second reason is, because of that, people don't want to offend other people, and they realize that not everybody believes in miracles and the supernatural, and they want to be polite, so they don't want to impose their miraculous beliefs on others or embarrass them. And yet, according to the polls, the vast majority of Americans believe in miracles. So what would the church look like if every pulpit had pasted on it? 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul says, My preaching was not with words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the power of God, so that your faith wouldn't rest on men's wisdom, but on God. It would look like one of two things. If the preacher believed and practiced those words, it would look like the early church. If he didn't, it would look like an embarrassing piece of fakery. <laughs> Both are uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. But isn't Christianity about God, for whom the supernatural is natural? So how can you not have the supernatural as part of your Christianity? You can't not have that element as part of your Christianity. A God without power is a wimp God, and that's not God. And the church without that power is not the church, it's Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. <laughs> the way that Christ did it was to lay hands on people when he spoke with them. And then he said, if you're not going to believe my words, at least believe in the miracles. He seems to be saying they are the foundation. Ontologically they are. Without creation and incarnation and resurrection, nothing else happens. Mm -hmm. Some people even saw Jesus perform miracles and still didn't believe. Right, and isn't that because, I think this point is key, miracles, by their essence, are like gears on a car or amplifiers that accelerate wherever you're already going, whereas things like doctrines simply tell you which way to point the car. Right. The miracles are like an afterburner, which gives special power to the car, 
And the doctrine is not a part of the car or something a car does, because those both change, but the roadmap, which tells you where the car should be headed. So if you've got doctrine, but lack energy... Yeah, that's like uh, a fantasy vacation with a roadmap only. Okay. Let's get more specific and talk about ongoing manifestations throughout the world. Cardinal Ratzinger, before he became Batman the 16th, <laughs> said that we're living in the Pentecostal hour of the church, and at the time he spoke that in the 1980s, Pentecostalism comprised only 6% of Christianity. Now, we're at an astonishing 25%, 600 million in the world's fastest growing movement. Let he who has ears, let him see. Well, to be a member of a church or denomination that calls itself Pentecostal is one thing. To be Pentecostal, to be under the power of the Holy Spirit is another thing. All Christians are Pentecostal. But not all Christians are Pentecostalists. Right. And for those listening, I'm using the words charismatic and Pentecostal to be basically synonymous as those who experience the Pentecostal charisms. But what Ratzinger meant there was, I think, the Holy Spirit is working overtime in the 20th century. There have been more miracles and more martyrs in the 20th century than in all the previous centuries of human history combined. Yeah. And uh, the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life did an extensive international study on this. And the director, Louis Lugo, said, I don't think it's too far-fetched at this time to seriously consider whether or not Christianity is well on its way to becoming Pentecostalized. Oh, yes. And that's where the Christianity is growing. You oh. don't see many miracles in Europe, and Christianity is dying in Europe. You see enormous miracles in Africa and in China, and Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds there. Huh. Can we solve the puzzle? Uh, let's see. Uh, click, click, click. Yes, these pieces fit together. There's a quote you like to use on this. I think you said it was from Vatican II? I think the quote was, uh, the charismatic movement will fulfill itself when it disappears into the rest of the church like a mighty river that waters a desert. And here's another one from the man whose job is to preach to the Pope. The only guy who can do that, Father Cantalamesa. And picked by John Paul II 30-some years ago. He's on the vanguard of the charismatic renewal, and he makes these striking statements that through the renewal, people discover what Christianity is all about. I'm calling on people to hold seminars of new life in the spirit where a person can experience the renewal and pass from being nominal Christians to real Christians. Well, of course. But the only addition, which I think he would agree with, is this should become so normal that it is not distinctive and we don't need Life of the Spirit seminars because every RCIA program contributes to it. Amen. Hey, you preach it, bro. To see some of this in action, all one has to do is watch a movie like Finger of God or another one similar to it called Furious Love in which people are getting miraculous manifestations through a prayer called the laying on of hands, the first time of which can be offered as the baptism of the Spirit. And as Father Candle Mesa says, the baptism of the Spirit is not a human invention, it's a divine invention. It's a renewal of the whole Christian life and of all the sacraments. It is not an island, it's a grace meant for all the baptized, which is what you just pointed out. Now, why is there such a massive misunderstanding of this? Well, if they haven't experienced it themselves, they'll look at it from the outside and say, what's going on here? Are these people into something that I don't have? How could that be? I'm an expert. Or they might say, are these people sort of super Christians? Well, then they must be kind of arrogant and superior. 
Or are these people weird? Uh, if so, they're a dangerous aberration. Or are these people more passionate than I am? Well, that passion must lead them in the wrong direction. That's a dangerous thing. Uh, there are all sorts of ways of being afraid of anything new. You can check that out in your own experience. Anything, secular or sacred, that's challenging to you personally. And that changes everything. Not just a little part. Not just a little addition. But a new light, a new fire, a new heat, a new reason that changes everything. That's, that's scary. So what's the solution? The solution is just do things God's way and ask for the full gospel, including the Holy Spirit. If he's the missing person of the Trinity, then let's uh, have a missing persons bureau and find him. <laughs> and now I know I'm hammering on this point, but it's especially important for Catholics because you get people like Juan Francis, who is an important encourager of it, and Benedict XVI said he wanted it incorporated into every part of the church's life, and the U.S. Catholic Bishops' Conference said this was supposed to be normal. And the Catechism gives plenty of encouragement for these extraordinary charisms. And the Bible says to crave them. And John Paul II, in his famous Pentecost speeches, taught that the charismatic dimension is part of the essential constitution of the Church. Thus speak the popes. Touché. In other words, it's not a side dish. It's more like wine, which activates every part of the meal. Yeah. It's essential to the party. Not just some sort of random bonus. Institutionally, alas, it usually is. I think there was no need of this in the early church because everyone was charismatic. Uh, its connection with the sacrament of confirmation, I think, is one of the keys historically. The sacrament of confirmation sometimes is almost indistinguishable from baptism in the early church. Then with the problem of infant baptism, it got separated. And still in the Eastern church, uh, it's given, I think, at baptism rather than later. At least in the Western church, what confirmation is supposed to do is precisely release the power of the Holy Spirit in the Catholic's life. So we should all become charismatics when we're confirmed. But I would want to add that the charismatic renewal movement, people call themselves Pentecostals, we're just the ones who remember and specialize in it. But I think there are very many people that are properly called charismatic whom charismatics usually would not label as charismatic. All the recent popes, for example. Yeah. Okay, let's speculate for a minute. Can you bring up that study that you'd like to reference on SAT scores in the U.S.? in international competition of high school students in uh, science and math. The 50 industrialized nations all had their best students compete in high school senior math and science tests. And uh, the one 10 years ago, I think, the U.S. scored next to last. Uh, this time we were a little better. We were like somewhere in the middle. But both times the U.S. students thought they did the best. And it was either the Koreans, I think it was the Koreans, maybe it was the Japanese students who did the best, and they thought they did the worst. Thank you. Now, here's my challenge. Is it possible there's a direct parallel to this, in that the Western Church thinks it's on the cutting edge of the kingdom of God compared to the rest of the world, but by an underdeveloped exposure to the Holy Spirit, really it's not. Baptized Catholics have the Holy Spirit by baptism and he should be further released in confirmation. So the possession of the Holy Spirit is necessary to salvation. 
That's clear from the New Testament. The release of the power of the Holy Spirit and the awareness of his presence and his power, that's another thing. That varies enormously. And that's where the third world countries have way over us. For those that are newer to this, one of the common places you can go to experience these things, as Father Kendall Mesa mentioned, is at the Life in the Spirit seminar. Or you can also go to something called an Alpha course. And one of the analogies used on the seminar is that sometimes Christians can be like glasses of chocolate milk, where the chocolate is settled to the bottom. And what is needed, the Apostle Paul says, is a stirring up. Shake them up. Is this the difference between potential grace and actual grace? Yeah. Yeah, the chocolate's there, but it doesn't rise to the surface until you shake. That's good. And so we might be in a position already to experience more. Yep. And not even realize it. I think part of the reason for that is cultural and psychological. Americans are still largely Northern European, proper, very civilized, kind of British and a little distrustful of passion and extremism. If there's any word that will automatically disqualify you from polite, educated company in America, it's the word fanatic. But you go to these third world countries and you find remarkable enthusiasm, like wild romantic lovers. Yeah, but if God is a wild romantic lover... Yes, he's also a gentleman. So we've got something they don't have culturally namely the rules of civilized politeness and reason and science and all that, and they certainly got something we don't have culturally, namely a flaming heart. A better thing. Put the two together and you've got a complete person. Nice. One of the advantages of talking to Peter Kraft is that you can quote one of his many books, 67, you say now? Yeah, recount. <laughs> there were a lot of hanging shads. <laughs> and in your books, you're often saying things like, the real Jesus is shocking... And we need to be more excited about praise than of sports. And the closer you get to God, the less important method, techniques, and formulas are. But don't we see all these things as hallmarks in the charismatic renewal? Absolutely. For example, Walter Hooper, trustee of the C.S. Lewis estate, says that he finds the most encouraging thing in Catholicism the University of Steubenville, which is, of course, the most charismatic. Yep. Which you regard as a miraculous place. Well, there's a saint there. Father Scanlon should have been given worldwide awards as the, the Catholic of the 20th century. Okay, let's get a little closer to home here. What does a person do if they want more of the Holy Spirit? You identify the need, and then you fulfill it. You do nothing if you're perfectly satisfied, and we should never be perfectly satisfied this side of heaven. And if you're not satisfied with your present spiritual life and your relationship with God, you ask, what's missing? And if part of the answer is a deep awareness of his miraculous presence and his gifts, then you search out how you can discover that. And certainly the charismatic movement is a powerful way of discovering that. And when somebody encounters the renewal, can't they take advantage of the famous Lord, liar, or lunatic argument, usually given for Christ, and apply it to the Holy Spirit. In other words, these things are either from God, or they're made up, or they're from the enemy. Yes, yes. The devil's afraid of anything really powerful and good and authentic, so he's going to subvert it and uh, do everything he can to blow smoke in people's faces. So there's a lot of fake miracles, a lot of fake evangelists, a lot of fake healers. Yeah. Everything has to be tested. And you need to have something to test. 
Okay. Didn't Christ really give us his model for worshiping in the church at Pentecost, where we wait in worship with a sort of romantic expectancy for him to really show up? And then he does, and then we're drunk in love. Yeah, yeah. We're so in love with God that you're drunk with love. And of course, you can have the supernatural in your life without being a saint, but you can't be a saint without having the supernatural. Right. Because a saint is not just a, a very, very, very nice man. A saint is someone who is plugged into God. A little Christ. Yeah. And if received, opened, and exercised, charisms lead to character. Right. Uh, the less spectacular fruits of the Spirit are much more important than the more spectacular gifts of the Spirit because they have deeper roots and longer-lasting fruits, but they're connected together. They reinforce each other. The more of one, the more of the other. Excellent. The more of the one, the more of the other. I think the thing that makes the Pentecostal presence of God so central and so unique is that it specializes in God's initiative, especially in a group experience. So if we can have more of God's initiative and less of our own, we'll have more authentic Christianity because Christianity is about God's love for us more than our love for God. That will also help us to distinguish the fake from the authentic because God doesn't do fakery. So inauthentic charismatic gifts and inauthentic miracles are always from the bottom up. They're always done by human power. But when God works, he always surprises you and he always bypasses something in you he does something that you couldn't possibly do for yourself. And of course, he can't be boxed in or formularized. Yep. Okay, moving forward. Let's address the role of the intellect and the emotions. Intellectually, one easy misunderstanding, I think, is this view that the Bible is primarily principles interrupted by stories, when actually it's the reverse. It's primarily experiential stories with principles, like the difference between reading a book on marriage and being married. But don't we often get that backwards? Of course. Well, the whole purpose of the cognitive dimension is to lead to the deeper dimension. The reason for learning about God is to learn who God is. So it's not that you have two things that you have to balance, like two sides of a seesaw. It's like one is the porch and the other is the bedroom. <laughs> okay, how does one release intellectual pride, which can bar the doors and prevent one from being childlike, simple, trusting, silly? You laugh at yourself. You gotta have a sense of humor. You gotta take yourself not seriously. That's a very great danger to take yourself seriously. And I'm not a psychologist. I don't know how to egg people on into self-deprecating humor. But uh, without humility, nothing else follows. Okay, what about the emotions? How do you encourage somebody who says, well, the renewal's not my thing because I'm just not that emotional? When, of course, the charismatic renewal is not about emotions, it's about charisms, which will produce emotions like joy. That is evidence of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And isn't it ironic to say something like, I'm not comfortable with emotional worship, which, of course, is not a rational reason, hence an emotional one. 
Yeah, the suppression of emotion is due to an emotion, namely the fear of emotion. Yeah. So that is rather ironic. If somebody has that objection, what I'd say to them, I think, is two things. Number one, since we have a magisterium of the church, that's guidance. That's a kind of a safety. So if you're afraid, just follow the Orthodox Church. And one of the things the church says is that you need the Holy Spirit. The second thing I'd say is that if you say, I don't need that because it's too emotional for me, I'd say, well, I don't know you well enough to know whether that's true or false. And even if I knew you better, I still wouldn't know you well enough. Only God knows you well enough. So be totally open to him. Don't say, God, please keep me away from this. But for most places in our culture, don't you think there's a greater danger of unemotionalness? Mm-hmm. I mean... How do you have the passion of the Christ if your emotions aren't working? Two answers. One is the concrete answer. On a human level, of course, the more you love someone, the more passionate you are about them. So emotion is a kind of index of the depth of love. Second answer is a very important philosophical distinction. God does not have emotions in the human sense because he doesn't change. He can't fall in love because he is already infinite love. You can't increase his love, but you can increase our love. So we have emotions. Notice the word motion is in emotions. Emotions are meant to move you into deeper intimacy and deeper love. And Jesus is rich in emotion. Yes, yes. He's the perfect human being, and he is not a stoic, and he's not a scholar, and he's not a philosopher, although he has a philosophy, uh, and he was an emotional man. All right, let's talk about your experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. I ran into a guy named Father Tom DiLorenzo. Do you remember him? Oh, I know him, yeah. Wonderful guy. He has a radio show out of Boston? Yeah. Anyway, he's very big on the renewal, and he says he was there at the Life in the Spirit seminar when you were first prayed with to receive the baptism of the Spirit some years ago. Oh, yeah, I met him there, and uh, I said when I first met him, this is either one of the most naive simpletons I have ever met in my life, or he is one of the most simple and saintly persons I have ever met in my life. And he is a simple and saintly person, wonderfully honest. He has a funny story. He says when it came time to place hands on you, you asked him, what are the chances I'll get the Holy Spirit? <laughs> you remember that? Yeah. What was his answer? He said, 100%. 100%. Uh-huh. That's the right answer. <laughs> well, that's what the Bible says. All who ask, find. On another topic, do you remember early on when we were first getting your website going, you used to ask me these great questions like, uh, how long can a web page be? Yeah. Don't you think that's funny? No, frankly, why is that funny? <laughs> because it's like saying, how long can a piece of paper be? <laughs> I guess only a webmaster, or else only someone who's totally computer well, I said to you, how long can a piece of paper paper be, hard copy? Well, well I, guess, I guess I see a web page simply as a set of words that appears on a computer screen. And you can count the words, and you can count the spaces, just as you can on molecule paper. No? Mm. I guess cyberspace is different. It's as long as Peter Kreeft wants it to be. Well, that's scary. Yeah. You know, that's why I like paper better than cyberspace. It's got limits. It knows its creatureliness. All right. One of the things I think is really a game changer with the Holy Spirit is that he reveals Christ is right there with you. Yeah. And then once he starts interacting with a person more directly... 
you might have to take a risk based on something he tells you. That is extremely important because one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit is the forgotten person of the Trinity is not merely that we have neglected him. That's part of it. But the other part is, even when we don't neglect him, he doesn't talk about himself. He talks about Christ. He is totally transparent to Christ. His whole purpose is to bring us closer to Christ and Christ closer to us. So they're working together. Let's talk about specific gifts, practically. Tell us about a common gift, a starter gift, if you will, the gift of tongues. My opinion is identical with that of the church and St. Paul. It's an authentic gift. It's uh, a prayer language that uh, everyone can have. Uh, it should be and can be used for edification. Paul had it. He prays, I wish you all had it. Mm-hmm. Okay, right now let's cut to a one-minute excerpt from one of your talks. If you pray in tongues, if you have the gift of tongues, that's a, a wonderful prayer gift because we're stupid and we don't know what to say. Paul tells us in Romans, when we don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit speaks for us with sounds that we don't understand, groanings that are unutterable, and the fact that we don't understand it is good. Because our unconscious is more powerful than our conscious. We have to do something with it. We have to educate it. And repetition is a great way of educating it. And the fact that the conscious, rational, abstract understanding doesn't get in the way, that's good. Nothing wrong with either one of them, but we need both. So praying in words that you don't understand is a way of saying, God, I trust that you're the better prayer than I am, so I'd rather use your words than mine, so please pray through me and for me and instead of me. C.S. Lewis said he would be surprised if something like the gift of tongues didn't exist because it's something that only makes sense from the perspective of heaven. Would you call this a fair description? It is God praying for you. It's an artistic gift, deeper than words, a mystery-to-mystery -mystery dialogue. Not an earthly language, but a heavenly one, of angels. A lubricant for contemplative prayer. A private encrypted line that the devil can't read. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure about the devil and how much he can read. I got that from St. Teresa of Avila's description of her gift of tongues. But I know he doesn't like it. He doesn't like anything that comes from God. And therefore, he loves to not only head you off away from God's gifts, but also misuse them. So the more divine a thing is, the more he resents it and the more he wants to pervert it, which is why you get such scandals in the church. And you get some religious people who can be much wickeder than secular people because the corruption of the best things is the worst things. And the best thing is one of its purposes, to ignite praise, yeah. which is a more powerful form of prayer because it involves not just your mind, but your mind and your body. It's not just serious, but it's also a joyful thing, an actual celebration. And that moves God's heart. And as a result, it becomes not just one-way prayer, but two-way. So tongues is like a trigger for that. And it also makes you humble. Because you don't understand it, usually. So you're like a baby, and you want to praise Daddy, and you just say, da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> don't overcomplicate it. That's something similar to what Cardinal Sunin said, a chief architect of Vatican II, who described his own experience of getting the gift of tongues as being like entering a low door through a church. If you can bend low enough, like a humble little kid, 
you can get access to so much more. I'm not sure whether it's the gift itself that does that, or more likely the humility that's necessary to receive it. Perhaps both. Because it's certainly not a gift that's well understood and popular and public and something that'll make you accepted at fashionable cocktail parties. <laughs> you gotta go to the right parties. You said in your book, The God Who Loves You, one of my favorites, that tongues is speaking on man's behalf to God, whereas prophecy is speaking on God's behalf to men. And so they're often paired. They form a sort of a dialogue. Tongues is the question, prophecy is the answer. And this is why Paul says that prophecy is the most important and tongues the least important of the gifts. Because when you're talking to God, what you say is far less important than what God says to you. Amen. But tongues would be the least important of the extraordinary gifts. Right. Okay. Well, here's a little bit about my story on this. After several successive months of escalating levels of hunger, I finally uncorked the wine and got the gift of tongues. Now, I don't typically see visions like many of my friends do, at least not in the same way. They say they're cool. They can be vivid or subtle, color or black and white, 3D or 2D, literal or symbolic, perceived with the mind or perceived with the physical eyes, hmm. or some other type of experience they haven't had before. But clearly... It's the gift of tongues that helps release these things. For example, the first time I pray for somebody and lay hands on them, they will commonly see a vision of an angel or the cross or something else that God wants to help with. It's a great mystery why God gives one gift to one person and another gift to another person. Uh, I think the gift he's given to me, I don't think it's one of the charismatic gifts lists in the Bible, but I'm sure it's a supernatural gift, is the gift of having thoughts just bubble up in my head and they're good thoughts and they're clear thoughts and I put them down on a piece of paper and I said, why did I think that? Where did that come from? So I've written 67 books in, in like 23 years and I don't take much time to write them and I don't revise them and they just come. I was talking to a rather holy priest a couple of days ago and he said, the one thing that makes it impossible for me ever to consider being an atheist is that so many good things happen to my interior life even when I'm not in a holy state and I'm, I'm not praying or I'm complaining to God and then he'll give me such an idea or such a, a desire for prayer or something that I know didn't come from me. I think that's very common. The gift that you describe you have would be called inspirational prophecy by a guy named Damien Stain from Britain who's got an international charismatic healing ministry where he trains people in these things. He says these gifts are like seeds and they have to be watered with faith by practicing receptivity. Yeah. I guess God deals with everybody differently. So the way it's worked out in my life is a very subtle way. You just gradually see things more clearly and you gradually get more of a sense of peace that you know didn't come from your efforts. Okay, let's talk about personal response and then we'll wrap up. Mm -hmm. I think the key to all of this is who is deciding how far I'm going to go with it? That's always cooperative because it's God who gives the grace, but you who receive it. And any gift has to be freely given and freely received. Otherwise, it's not a gift. And that applies to the charismatic gifts as well. And God is, in his essence, a gift. Yes, Sometimes I think we approach God and we say, well, I'll take this gift, but not that gift. Or 
I don't need the gifts. I'm good. But the whole point of God giving them is to serve and synergize the fellowship. So at the very least, we should be asking for these things for others. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, far more important than what gift you get is who is managing them. This is one of the things most Christians can learn from Muslims. Islam, total surrender. Blank check. Submission. Because this is a God, for goodness sakes. Pure love. Why would you want to put that into little bottles? So the action item, or the inner altar call, if you will, that I like to encourage is twofold. First, don't just be open, but be hungry. Yes. So often in the Gospels, when somebody really wants to be blessed by Christ, there's a transcending of even Jesus' expectations. And he loves and that. And look at that parable of his about the unjust judge. The woman bangs on the door of the judge day after day, give me justice, give me justice. And only after she does that a long time does he give her justice. And amazingly, Jesus says, that's how you have to pray. As if God is just waiting for you to, to exhaust yourself and banging on his door, and then he'll give it to you. He wants that banging. Because he's a lover. Yes. I think too often we look at God as a disgruntled landlord mm -hmm. instead of a father. Yeah. Especially we modern Americans who live more in the workplace than in the family. Uh, it's natural for us to think of love as a reward for performance. I will love you because you did well. You got an A on the test. You took out the garbage. You uh, uh, walked your sister to school. You uh, did these good deeds. Therefore, I will love you. You're my good employee. Therefore, I will give you more of a salary. But the family is the one place where you're loved no matter how good or bad you are. You're loved just because you're there. Because you belong. And that's how God loves us. And we can't get that through our thick skull. That's amazing. How could God love this bratty teenager? That's me. <laughs> but he does. So that's the first piece of advice. Be hungry. Yeah. Like when a man asks a woman to marry him, she could say, wait, later, no, I'm not interested, I'm distracted, whatever. But the best answer is, of course, yes. Sometimes yes manifests itself in those other answers as a test. Watch how animals make love. They play. There's a lot of foreplay. They pretend to fight. They test each other. How much do you love me? Will you keep at it for hour after hour? Okay, then you can conquer me. <laughs> so be expectant. Yeah. Play to win. Do you think that sometimes, even in Christianity, there's a worship of openness? You know, I'll be open. In other words, eh, whatever. But isn't Christ more charged out by somebody who has this surprising confidence in him that he's great? Of course you're going to bless me. That's a good point. Openness is too weak. That's like the word respect. You should respect other people's values. You should respect people. You should respect God. No, you respect money. But it's got to be stronger than that. Yeah, it's not just openness. It's hunger. And the second piece of advice is to plug in to where people are already experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit in this two-way interactive prayer. And this is probably going to be at a charismatic prayer meeting or event. As you say in your book, Prayer, the Great Conversation, the Holy Spirit is not taught as much as caught. It's very simple. If you want to get wet, go out where it's raining. So if you want to become a saint, find a saint and hang around with them. Yeah. 
And in my experience, this takes a certain violence to the schedule to make room. Because if we want radical answers, then we need the radical avenues. And it helps to go to a meeting where there's actually a Holy Spirit. You can't just attend the meeting and say, Oh, I went. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. You have to stay long enough for the Holy Spirit to show up. It's as if God is saying, If you're willing to do the ridiculous, I'm ready to do the miraculous. Sometimes he asks us to be ridiculous, yes. Sometimes he asks us to stop being ridiculous. Nothing really counts, whether it's being ridiculous or not being ridiculous, whether it's being public or private, whether it's being more emotional or less emotional. Nothing counts except in relation to his will. Anything that comes from and leads to him is good. Anything that doesn't is bad. So the bottom line is, God's crazy about you. Experience it. Yeah. And if by experience it, you mean feel it, well, that's a kind of a silly thing to say. I command you to feel a certain emotion at this point. You can't do that. Jesus commands us to love. Emotions can't be commanded. He commands us to love, to will, to want. Can you describe something in your life where there was a Holy Spirit sighting? Many, maybe all. Uh, the more you talk to believing and church-going Christians, the more you realize that miracles are the norm, not the exception. And the forms that the miracles take are incredibly diverse. They usually are, are unexpected. Sometimes they're expected, they're prayed for. But uh, God loves to sneak up behind you and tap you on the shoulder and say, I've got a gift for you. And often we resist him time and time again. And then the subtle feeling grows that you're holding something at bay. And then you relax and you let your guard down. And you may not be explicitly hungering or praying for it, but then he gives you something that's so precious that it could only have been a miracle. I believe there are thousands of times more miracles than we think exist in the world. Because the spiritual world is just as real and much more complex than the physical world. Off the top of your head, can you give us one? This very conversation. Neither of us knew exactly where it was going. You had a series of questions and you suspected what my answers would be, but there's a lot that came out that didn't come from either those questions or my answers. Who knows where they came from? Divine inspiration. <laughs> would you enjoy seeing a vision of an angel? Of course. My goodness, that's, that's like, what a silly question. That's, that's almost like saying, would you enjoy watching Michelangelo paint The Last Supper? I wouldn't feel comfortable, but I'd certainly enjoy it. I might not be able to endure it, but I'd enjoy it. Well, the reason I bring that up is because when I invite people to a prayer meeting and I say, would you like to come to one of these gatherings where people are reporting experiencing things like seeing angels? And then I noticed that this is one of the things that convinces me that Christianity is true because it shows how emotionally fragile we are. Very rarely will the topic at least be addressed rationally. Yeah. We're also afraid of being conned and fooled. And we know there are fakers around, so we don't want to take a chance. Yeah, but a lover is a risk taker. That's a requirement. Right. You got to be in the game to score. We learn from mistakes almost better than from anything else. Wouldn't you say God enjoys it more when we're engaged rather than sitting back in a sort of apathetic fashion? Oh, absolutely. No, no woman could possibly respect a man who doesn't want to take a chance in loving her. 
So whenever a new person comes to our fellowship, I always invite them to get the prayer of the laying on of hands so that when they actually experience something, they know. Nobody has to convince them. For example, I have a friend who came for the first time and received a vision very clearly that her sister and her husband, who had been trying to get pregnant for years, would soon have a child. Flashed a bang. Not long after that, they report they're pregnant. I have heard many, many such stories. Unfortunately, the media doesn't believe in them, so you don't hear them in public. Okay, great. That's it. Thanks for joining us. What's it like to be Dr. Peter Craig? What's it like to be Dave Nevins? Answering a lot of Peter Craig's email. He's not as good as Peter Craig. No, better. Uh, I, I can't be Dave Nevins nearly as good as you can be Dave Nevins. Some might debate that, but did you know that God made you just for the fun of it? Yeah, I knew that. Most people don't. God's a real trickster. But how much more would we really get it if the Holy Spirit spoke that to us? The Holy Spirit has to speak that to them. That's not rational. <laughs> it's above rational. I like to ask people, are you filled with the Holy Spirit or are you just faking it? <laughs> okay, everybody, thanks for listening. We're going to close here with a prayer in a moment, but first an announcement that if you want more on this topic, you can go to petercrafe.com and reference the resources on the page where this audio is linked. Films, books, audio. Or you can go to my website, davenevins.com. For lots more. Okay, if you want to talk to God for all of us, that'd be great. Lord Jesus, help us to ask you and to hunger and to seek for only one thing, yourself. And since your will is for us to receive your very spirit, give us the fullness of your spirit so that we can enter fully into your joy in this life, and certainly in eternity. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you very much. You're welcome.